Hey everybody, welcome to Valley Church. My name's Brandon. I am one of the pastors here and I just want to welcome you to our online gathering. Uh, it is Palm Sunday. What a special season for all of us as we enter into Holy Week. Hopefully today's message will be just what you need. We wanted to encourage you and to uh, spur you on to, to growth. Uh, my wife and I, we were uh, actually sitting on like the couch one day and she's just browsing the internet and uh, just out of nowhere, she says, you're not going to believe what's happening. Like I go, like what? She was real like startled. And she said, one of our good friends was in the ER and we hadn't seen these people for a long time. They live in Illinois. We live in Iowa. And uh, I immediately jumped up, grabbed my phone and I wanted to send a text message to their family where well, they're just so such good people, good friends. And I wanted to let them know we were cheering them on. So I sent uh, Chelsea a message and I said, hey, I just wanted you to know that I'm praying for you. Uh, I just wanted her to be encouraged and let them know that we were taking this before the Lord. As she writes back almost immediately and says, thanks. I could use all the prayer I can get right now. How are you doing? Um, very encouraging right back uh, with what they were going through. I just love these people. And so I texted and said, I'm doing well. I'm doing okay. Uh, just concerned about your dad wondering how he's doing. I just want some information. I want some details. I want to know specifically how I can pray and I want them to know I'm in their corner. Chelsea writes back and says, oh, he's doing well, which was a big encouragement because when you see online that somebody is in the ER, you just kind of panic. You don't have all the information. You can't ask questions. You don't get answers. Uh, and so this is what I wrote back. That's really good to hear. When I heard he went to the ER, I was worried. Of course I was worried. And Chelsea writes back. She says, what? My dad's in the ER. Where did you hear this? And I'm like, how do you not hear this? And I'm like, you know what? I don't want to be the first person to tell her that her dad's in the ER. This is kind of like a mess. And so I just write back on Facebook. I, I saw it on Facebook. It's all over Facebook. How do you not know? And uh, then I started to think, this is on Facebook. And I asked, is this Chelsea? And Chelsea immediately responds and says, no, this is Brian. How did you get my number? And it's starting to stream through my head. This poor guy is floored, stressed out because somebody is telling him his dad is in the hospital. The next text, uh, this is a number of an old friend of mine. I am so sorry. I just felt so bad. My heart sunk, my stomach butterflies. And, and then he writes back, hey man, no worries. No worries. I just got this number a few months ago. Uh, Chelsea must have changed her number without telling me. And, uh, and then he also writes back and says, uh, in related news, you almost sent me to the ER. I hope Chelsea's dad is okay. Bye. <laughs> that was the last time uh, he and I ever spoke. And uh, uh, what, what a weird thing. What a panicky moment when you get somebody's identity wrong. Maybe that's happened to you. Somebody mistook you for somebody or, or maybe you were mistaken for something that you were not. You know, that's probably more common is that somebody has a misconception about who you are. They simply don't know who you are or understand who you are. For example, maybe you got a job or maybe you didn't get a job because of who somebody thought you were. Maybe you, you got a promotion or you didn't get a promotion because of what somebody thought you were capable of or what you actually weren't capable of. Uh, you know, a lot of times it's not that people think that you're somebody else, but maybe they don't think that you're actually uh, as qualified 
as you are. Maybe you're pushed out of a friend group because people misunderstood you, or maybe you were pulled into a friend group because of what that group thought you would do for them, even if you wouldn't. You know, for me, I remember being in sixth grade and I wanted to try out for baseball. It was like one of my like best, biggest dreams as a kid. And uh, the day of baseball tryouts, we couldn't make it. My family had to take a, a trip. We just went away. My mom and dad knew that baseball tryouts were that day because I had been looking forward to them, but we just couldn't go. Uh, and somehow, some way, I made the team. I had never played sports of any kind. Well, I'm a bowler, which makes me an athlete, but uh, little league sports, football, nothing. How did I get picked for this team? And uh, halfway into the season, the coach, he, uh, he asked me, he said, hey, how's Shane? And I was like, Shane who? He goes, Shane Early, your brother, the best little league player to ever play the game. <laughs> and then it all made sense. I made the team because this guy thought I was somebody who I actually wasn't. And uh, when somebody has a, a misconception about you, uh, it's kind of like you can't measure up or they've put you so high that you let them down. That's what happened. Uh, misunderstanding, it can be the source of so much frustration and disappointment and unfilled expectations. Uh, one thing that I know we all have in common, you might wanna write this down. You probably don't need to write this down. Uh, no one wants to be misunderstood. No one wants to be misunderstood. Uh, you know, here's, here's a phrase I often say, you know, I don't need everybody to like me, but if they don't like me, I want them to not like me for the right reasons. I don't want people to not like me for something that's fake. You know, I've been uh, called a bully before and I'm just like, what, where's that from? And really they just mistook me for being a bully because I'm loud, like I am loud. And you cannot like loud people, I'm okay with that, but I'm not a bully. Don't, don't get confused as to who I am or who other people are. Uh, why don't you turn to your Bibles to the Gospel of John chapter 12. This is a Palm Sunday passage. This is that epic, iconic scene of Jesus riding in Jerusalem on a donkey, uh, this triumphal entry, but it's not necessarily triumphal the way everybody is expecting. Jesus is on mission, he is on point. And so many people in this passage, they, they have their own idea of who Jesus is. Uh, if anybody was misunderstood in scripture, it's Jesus. Time and time again, people are misunderstanding who Jesus is because of what they wanted, because of what they expected. You know, they wanted a relationship with Jesus without any of the sacrifice. They wanted uh, all the benefits of Jesus without any of the responsibility of being a follower. And as we read through today's passage, I would love for you to actually see who Jesus is. Uh, if you're not a note taker, today would be the day to grab out your Bible on your phone or pull it out, a notebook, and just a highlighter because we wanna see Jesus for who he really is. And he comes uh, to life so clearly in this text and in this passage. Uh, it's one of the most important things of your life is to really know who Jesus actually is. And the further and further we go into this passage, it seems like the further and further people are away from Jesus. We start in uh, verse one of chapter 12. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was, the one Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha was serving them and Lazarus was one of the ones who was reclining at the table with him. 
I love this. We open the scene just identifying that Passover is coming. Passover is a Jewish celebration. People are coming to Jerusalem to celebrate their freedom from slavery out of Egypt. And if you don't know the story, like the, the quick story is that the, there was this, so, these plagues, one after another, after another. And the final plague was God saying, I'm gonna take the oldest child away from everyone. That oldest child would die unless you identified with him. And uh, in order to identify with him, there was a sacrifice made and blood painted over their door as identification that we're followers of the one true living God. And if those doors had that blood over it, he would pass over and let that family keep their child. But those who were wayward would experience this final uh, deadly plague of their child being taken away. And this Passover, it's a celebration. People are coming from far distances into Jerusalem to celebrate. And Jesus, uh, he came to Bethany. I love this. Jesus went to Bethany every single day of Holy Week, except for Wednesday. I think he probably stayed in Jerusalem for youth group, but every day, Holy Week, he was Bethany, Jerusalem, Bethany, Jerusalem. And Wednesday, he was kind of taking some time with the Lord we could suppose. Uh, Jesus, he, he raised Lazarus from the dead just a chapter ago. Like this stirred the crowd. And by the way, when you raise somebody from the dead, it's a big deal. And in chapter 11, when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, people, not just locals knew, but because the festival was happening, people were already trickling into town. It was more information, more news, more buzz about Jesus than ever. And Martha, we see Martha in the passage. You remember Mary and Martha and Mary, uh, you know, she was worshiping at the feet of Jesus. Martha was serving and she was saying, Jesus, tell, tell her to come and, and serve with me instead of sit at your feet. And, but here in this passage, like Martha is serving without complaining. And it's not that she has to be like this militant servant. Mary is just expressing who she was created to be. She's living out of her giftedness. She's, she's serving them. And Lazarus, he's just reclining at the table and they're all having dinner. They're all eating together. Martha's serving, but she's certainly eating. And they're having, like here are some of the foods that they most certainly would have. This is Mediterranean food. I had the privilege of going to Israel and experiencing these foods. This is an Israeli salad. It is so good. It is so fresh. This, uh, the best hummus you'll ever have is in Israel. There's some pooled up oils and spices and it's just mixed to perfection, it's so good. Uh, this falafel, like uh, deep fried chickpea, and then it's in pita, you just shove it in there with as many, you don't even know what vegetables, it could be different vegetables every time, and some delicious white sauce. You got shawarma, like the uh, uh, shawarma, like lamb shawarma, it was fantastic, more vegetables and meat and uh, schnitzel chicken schnitzel. What that means is they just pound the chicken as flat as they can and then they bread it and deep fry it. And again, shove it in the pita bread. Look at this. Uh, you know what this is? Uh, it's a mystery to all of us. I have no idea. If you know what this is, send me a little email. Put it in the chat, okay? Uh, this fish, it looks kind of gross, but I got to tell you, this was at a place called St. Peter's Restaurant. It is where like the apostle Peter would have fished. Uh, and we, we, we had some fish. Now, you know, obviously he didn't catch this one, but it's in the same place. So it's kind of a cool experience to eat fish. And here's a picture of me eating this fish. Look at this. That fish, it was gross. Like it was not good at all. Uh, it was deep fried inside and out. Uh, we just got to get that off the screen. We got to get it. Let's keep reading. Then Mary took a pound of perfume, pure and expensive nard, anointed Jesus' feet. She wiped his feet with her hair. 
And so the house, now listen to this, imagine this, the house, it was filled with the fragrance of this perfume. And then one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot said, he's gonna say something, but let me just point some things out. You know, Mary, she continues to worship at the feet of Jesus. She comes to his feet and she anoints him with this perfume, this oil. She's preparing Jesus for what he's about to go through. She's worshiping him in a way that it fills the house with the fragrance of that perfume. And, and I think it's so much deeper than that. That house was filled with something special. It was filled with friends. It was filled with Christ's love. It was filled with this moment before what would be the most painful experience of Christ on earth. And here's what Judas said uh, about Mary's pouring out of this pound of perfume. Why wasn't this perfume sold for 300 denarii and, and given to the poor? Now, Judas didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. What we know is Judas, very soon after this, is going to betray Jesus. He's the betrayer. He's part of the inside crew, the original 12. And he's been taking money. He's been stealing. He's been scheming and plotting. He was in charge of the money bags and, and he would steal part of what was put in it. It's, it's dark. You know, we have been studying Proverbs here at Valley Church for several weeks. And, uh, you know, this is kind of one of the things that King Solomon says is we don't want to stir up trouble within the church. We don't want brothers stirring up trouble with brothers. And here is somebody on the inside pretending to be one way, but living a completely different lifestyle. Look at this. Jesus answered, leave her alone. She has kept it for the day of my burial. For you, you will always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. Jesus just comes in and says, Judas, shut it down. You know, Jesus is still filled with love and grace, but he's kind of putting Judas in his place. Let's keep reading. Then a large crowd of the Jews learned that he was there. Like people were following Jesus. And remember, the Passover is here. And so the crowd is getting bigger and bigger. And they came not only because of Jesus, but also to see Lazarus. They heard about this guy who was resurrected, the one he had raised from the dead. But the chief priests, the, these religious leaders in town, the chief priests had decided to kill Lazarus also. You see, in John chapter eleven fifty three, 53, he had already decided to kill Jesus. And now he's taking out both Jesus and Lazarus. At least that's the plan because uh, Jesus' powerful teaching and his incredible compassion along with the resurrection of Judas, it was just something that was drawing people away from their uh, you know, religiousness and moving into a relationship with Jesus. People were following Jesus. So because he, uh, Lazarus, was uh, the reason that many of the Jews were deserting and believing. This is so crazy to see uh, people getting so upset at the wonderful things that Jesus is doing. Look at verse 12. Uh, the next day when the large crowd uh, that had come to the festival heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took palm branches and they went out to meet him and they kept shouting. Can you imagine this? Just this crowd of crowds uh, it's, it's Passover, it's a celebration. And all these people, they want a party. So this wasn't uh, people shouting, you know, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Like these people wanted to party. Like they weren't just being passively saying this. They were shouting and celebrating, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. They're like, he's here, he's arrived. 
He's riding on this donkey. Look at what scripture goes on to say. Uh, Jesus found a young donkey and he sat on it just as it is written. So the crowds are saying, Hosanna, they're celebrating. And John comes behind that and he reminds everybody that Jesus found this donkey. And he reminds us that this is a fulfillment of prophecy. Uh, Do not be afraid, daughter of Zion. Look, your king is coming sitting on a donkey's colt. Like John sees it. Like the people see it and they don't fully get it, but John sees it. And it's so important to John that he starts to write it. He puts it in paper and ink. Just think about Jesus seeing this young donkey. What kind of, what kind of animal do you want to ride into battle on, right? Uh, it certainly wouldn't be a donkey. And I'm telling you, it wouldn't be a donkey's child. It wouldn't be a donkey's colt. Like it would be uh, some Mustang, you know, or it would be some kind of charging horse or, you know, really if I had my druthers, I would be on a rhinoceros or an elephant just charging into battle. But Jesus chooses a donkey. He chooses a donkey to fulfill prophecy, but the donkey is also a symbol of his humility and meekness. You see, the people should have already noticed that Jesus isn't charging into town uh, as, a, as a mighty warrior or a military leader or a political person. He's not overthrowing the government in the way that everybody thought he was. And this should clearly be a symbol of who he is. Let's keep reading. The disciples, his disciples, did not understand these things at first. However, when Jesus was glorified, then, then they remembered that these things had happened and had been written about him uh, and they had done these things to him. All of it like isn't quite making sense to the disciples. They can't really uh, make sense of everything that they've seen and heard. And uh, they're a little confused. They don't fully understand, but they're still with him. You got to notice that. You got to notice this about Jesus and you've got to notice this about disciples. Like they don't always understand, but they're fully with him. Let's keep reading. Uh, meanwhile, while all of this was happening, this crowd, it's getting bigger. Uh, this crowd, which, which had been with him since he called Lazarus out of the tomb, like that's a chapter ago, and raised him from the dead. They continued to testify about all these things that Jesus had done and who he is. This is also why the crowd met him, because they heard uh, that he had done these signs. And the Pharisees, they said to one another, you see, <laughs> look at this. You've accomplished nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. The Pharisees are getting jealous. That's really what's happening there. They're, they're jealous of Jesus' popularity. The, the Pharisees think that he's a, a liar, that he's blaspheming God, and that people shouldn't be following him. People should be following God their way. But Jesus is saying, no, this is the way. Jesus literally says, I am the way. And everybody Uh, these crowds are forming and so many are following. The crowds are forming and so many are following. But the disciples, they just didn't understand Jesus, at least at first. However, they eventually did. And when when Jesus, when, when we look at the crowd that was surrounding Jesus, these first century Jews, along with the chief priests and the Pharisees, it's clear that they didn't really understand who Jesus was, not who the real Jesus was. They didn't they didn't understand him and they didn't even try to understand him. Can I tell you something? You gotta, you gotta think about this. Not fully understanding Jesus is not a sin. Jesus isn't afraid of your doubts. He's not a, afraid of your questions and your concerns. 
Not understanding is not a sin, but deciding he is who he is not is a problem. Deciding that Jesus is someone or something that he is not, that's absolutely a problem. And that's what's going on with the Pharisees and the chief priests and, and even many, many who make up the crowd. You see, Jesus had a conversation with his disciples about his identity and, and he had a conversation with his disciples about how other people understood him. And Jesus knew the answer to all this, but he wanted to make sure his disciples knew. Here's what he says in Mark chapter eight, verses 27 through 29. Jesus went out with his disciples to the village of Caesarea Philippi. And on the road, he asked his disciples, he asked all of his disciples, who, who do the people say I am? What are the crowds saying? What are the, what are the people calling me? Uh, there's a buzz, there's a hum. I wanna know if you know who they think I am. And, and the disciples, they said, uh, you know, John the Baptist and, and others actually say Elijah and still others, one of the prophets. You see, because Jesus was pe preaching about repentance, they were like, maybe this is John the Baptist or, you know, because of his miracles, some thought Elijah, which would, you know, be, kind of match up with some of the things they remember from the Old Testament because of his wisdom and his proclamations. Others are saying, this is a prophet of old who has returned. And then he asks this piercing question, but you, now he's not talking to one of his disciples. He's singularly speaking to the entire group of disciples. And he says, who do you say I am? Who do you say I am? You see, it's not a sin to not understand Jesus, but Jesus wanted to make sure that they didn't think he was somebody he was not. And Peter, I mean, Peter, he is an eager guy. Like he is always the first one to speak. He is always putting himself out there. He's, he's a little ambitious and sometimes ambition was, was really killing him. But in this moment, he's the first one to say something. You know, Peter answered him, you're the Messiah. Uh, uh, in other gospels, he literally says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Like Peter gets it. Peter, uh, he absolutely nails it. To Peter, it's obvious. To, to the disciples, it's clear who Jesus is, but it wasn't that clear to everybody. You know, you and I, we can see who Jesus is to all of these people in this Palm Sunday passage. We can see who they think he is by their words and by their actions. It speaks so loud. And I just wanna kind of, Imagine, and maybe you could imagine with, while Jesus doesn't ask the question, who do you say I am directly to Lazarus? He really is asking everybody. But imagine if Jesus would say, Lazarus, who do you say I am? What do you think his response would be? I mean, Lazarus had a deep friendship with Jesus. And when Lazarus died, scripture says that Jesus wept. And when Jesus raised him from the dead in, in John chapter 11, people were looking and, and there's no doubt that Lazarus was celebrating. He would have certainly seen Jesus as a teacher with authority. He would have experienced his divine nature. He would have seen his miracle, experienced it. He's still a close friend. You know, Jesus gave Lazarus a second chance at life. You know, some of us uh, who, are, who are listening, who are watching, uh, you know, we're living that second chance at life. Uh, some of us need a second chance at life. And 
what Jesus did for Lazarus physically, Jesus wants to do for everyone spiritually. How about Martha? Martha, who do you say I am? Like Martha was a great servant. She was known for her hospitality and her dedication. You know, in contrast to Mary, who was sitting at Jesus' feet, Mary is on her feet serving. That doesn't make her more. It doesn't make her less. What we see in the text is that she's serving Jesus. You remember Jesus says, I did not come to be served, but to serve. And even though he was letting Martha serve him in the moment, you know, Martha was living out her purpose, her spiritual gifts, and she was serving Jesus. In addition to acknowledging his authority and his teaching, she's responding to Jesus' question with her practical hospitality, her desire to serve other people. She's expressing her desire to serve Jesus. So she's saying, Jesus, I love you. Uh, who do I say you are? I say you're one worthy of being served. I wanna serve you with my life. How about Mary of Bethany? Mary of Bethany, who do you say I am? You know, Mary would have been eager to answer this question. Uh, of all the people in the entirety of the text, Mary gets it. Like she just wholeheartedly gets it. She gives so much to uh, what she knows is her savior that the entire room, it kind of freezes. Everybody notices the smell of the perfume. It's sharp and it's immediate and it fills the house. She gets it so well that people are still telling her story today. That's what scripture says. Jesus says, they're gonna be talking about you forever because of what you have done for me. I think Mary of Bethany would have responded with a, a deep heartfelt expression of her love and devotion to Jesus. You know, Mary was a close friend. Mary was a very close follower. She, she was a disciple of the one true living God, Jesus Christ, Mary of Bethany. Uh, she, was, she was known for her worship of Jesus, anointing his feet with this expensive perfume, a pound of perfume. And this act of devotion and humility, it, it demonstrated Mary's love and reverence for Jesus. She wasn't ashamed to show her love for her savior. And then we see Judas in the text. Judas, Jesus just said it, Judas, who do you say I am? I honestly, this one stumps me. I don't know if Judas would have lied and just told Jesus what he thought Jesus would have wanted to hear. Uh, it's obvious that Judas had a different understanding of Jesus than all of the other disciples. There was something happening inside of him. Like he, he's a living example of somebody who wanted all of the benefits of being close to Jesus, but none of the sacrifice, none of the, the responsibility. You know, he was the betrayer. Even though he was on the inside, one of the, the first chosen 12, he was a betrayer. Maybe he would have responded uh, with lies. Maybe he would have responded with silence and left, like we see him doing in the upper room just a short time from this moment. But when you look at the life of Judas, his actions ultimately reveal that, you know, there were things in life that became more important to him than the person of Jesus. And, you know, we should note that Jesus, he's not afraid of, of questions. Jesus is not afraid of people following him who don't fully understand him. He's not afraid of doubts and struggles. We see all of those things in Judas. But Judas is an example of the dangers of embracing doubt, the dangers of allowing selfish motives to undermine one's relationship with the person of Jesus. We see this crowd 
I wonder if he would ask the crowd, like, like who do you say I am? If he could somehow take a, a survey of the entire crowd. Here's what I know about the crowd. Uh, when Jesus began his ministry with his disciples and he started teaching in the synagogue, people were astounded. Scripture actually says the people were astounded. They're like, we just thought he was a carpenter, but this guy is so much more than a carpenter. He's got wisdom. He's teaching with authority. He was blowing their minds. To the crowd, the, the people thought this may actually be the Messiah, but their view of who the Messiah was was very different than who the Messiah actually is. You know, they thought the Messiah would be a political leader to, to overthrow Rome or a military force to take Rome down. In John chapter 11, the crowds, they were growing because of the festival, but that meant that there was a greater and greater crowd, a group of people to see the miracle of Lazarus' resurrection. Everybody knew he was dead. He was beyond dead for so many days. And Jesus brought him back to life. So news about Jesus was spreading. The crowds grew larger and larger. And because of the festival, even bigger than they may have ever been. You know, Jesus could have somehow taken a survey and, and here's what maybe people would have said or what you would have noticed. Like, like last week, they, they would have said, you know, he's an amazing teacher. He's an amazing rabbi. But on, on Saturday, they, they would have said he's a miracle worker because of what they saw happen with with Lazarus. On Sunday, they would have grabbed palm branches and they would have said, he's our king. He's the king we have been waiting for. And on Monday, when Jesus cursed a fig tree and flipped over tables in the temple, some would have said, he's our advocate. While others would have said, whoa, 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 he's starting to mess with our stuff. And on Tuesday, as, as Jesus enters the temple uh, to debate and dispute religious leaders, some would have said, he's got to stop talking because he's He's revealing and exposing our hypocrisy. On Wednesday, the crowds would have grown like frustrated because they couldn't find him. He's nowhere to be found. He's probably having a conversation with his heavenly father. He's taking some time away to pray, to be away from the crowds, to prepare himself. We don't know. We don't know where he is. Neither does the crowd. And on Thursday, more of the same thing. The crowd has no idea where Jesus is, but do you know where he is? On Thursday, he's in an upper room, pulling in his closest disciples, having these final moments with people on his inner circle. And the cheers of those who weren't following him, who weren't truly following him, they were fading. And the voices of those who were shouting Hosanna on Sunday are now shouting crucify him on Friday. So if Jesus asked the crowd, who do you say I am? there would be no clear answer. Uh, they are what you might call fair-weather friends or fair-weather fans. They're fans of Jesus, but their fandom is fading. You know, he was a champion of the crowd. But I gotta tell you, at the beginning, it's easy to follow Jesus when, when following Jesus is a party. But when things get tough, that's when, that's when you really discover the level of follower you are. You know, the crowds came because they wanted to see Jesus save them. Like, Hosanna literally means save us. They were shouting, Hosanna. They were shouting, save us, Jesus. Save us. But they saw him as a savior of an earthly kingdom. They thought he was going to be an earthly politician, political warrior, mighty fighter. Save us. But save us our way. Don't save us any other way. They wanted 
They wanted Jesus to be their rescuer and their redeemer without any of the responsibility or the sacrifice. The crowd wanted Jesus to be who he was not. You know, Jesus' mission, it was not to establish an earthly kingdom through violence, but to bring salvation to all people through his death and through his resurrection, which is ultimately what what made the chief priests and the Pharisees absolutely hate him. I wonder what they would say if Jesus said to the chief priests and Pharisees, who do you say I am? Because they hated him. You know, the chief priests were known for their opposition to his teaching. They saw him as a threat to their authority. The Pharisees, they were... They were committed to following Jewish law and traditions. They accused him of blasphemy. They thought he was a liar, a lunatic, crazy person, violating the Sabbath and and associating with sinners and tax collectors. It was gross to them. You know, their narrow focus, uh, the the pride in, in their lives, it really blinded them to the deeper spiritual truths that Jesus came to reveal that he is a savior, that he is a redeemer. And for these groups, it's a missed opportunity. Who do you say I am? We say you are a false prophet. We say that you are a problem. Who do you say Jesus is? You know, you and I, we're kind of in the text, right? Uh, You know, we're disciples. And if Jesus said to the disciples, who do you say I am? What would they say? I'd love to hear each and every one of their private responses. Jesus wants to hear your response. He wants to know who you say he is. And the disciples, even in the text today, in John chapter 12, it says the disciples just didn't understand. They didn't always understand, which is no surprise because there is a lot of head shaking. Like the disciples are like, I don't know. I don't know why he's doing that. I don't know what that means. I know what I want. That doesn't seem like the same thing, but I'm just gonna stick with Jesus. I'm gonna follow him with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength. You know, Jesus, the Messiah, the son of the living God, that's who the disciples saw Jesus as. Each and every one of the disciples were so convinced that they gave their life for the cause of Christ. They gave their life for the mission of Jesus and the church that he put them in charge of. Every single one was martyred except for Judas who took his own life and John who was banished to the island of Patmos where he wrote the book of Revelation. Who do you say I am? If Jesus is asking, who do you say I am? When we look at the text, I see three categories. I see three. He had enemies. Jesus had enemies in the text. The the Pharisees and the chief priests and even, even the crowd at times. He had fans. You know what a fan is, right? A fan uh, is with you for a while, but a fan doesn't stay in the stadium and clean up. A fan never goes into the locker room to do the laundry. A fan sticks with the team when it's convenient. I mean, sometimes when it's inconvenient, you know, like uh, as a Cubs fan, I get beat up a lot. But I'm telling you, even though I take a lot of, of flack from people as a Cubs fan, man, I'm not staying, you know, scrubbing the seats. I'm not, that's a fan. And then there's followers. Jesus had enemies. Jesus had fans. Jesus had followers. And, you know, in In today's world, I mean, far too many people would say, Jesus, you're my genie. You you are here to give me what I want and what I need. Some people would say, Jesus is just a, he's just a life coach. He's helped giving me advice so that I can get through life. Even 
others uh, are saying that Jesus, you're here to make my life easy, um, which Jesus never said. I don't know why people think that. You know, becoming a follower of Jesus isn't a promise of an easy life. It's a promise of an eternal life with him. Yet others say that he's a, a moral teacher, but he's outdated and irrelevant in some areas. And yet others say that he's just a cosmic therapist. Some Christians view Jesus as somebody who provides emotional support and guidance and, and spiritual direction, but only when they really want it. You know, if you're feeling any of those, like if those are the reasons you're following Jesus, uh, you, you kind of fit up in here and, you know, maybe an enemy, certainly a fan, but, but followers of Christ don't see Jesus as a, as a cosmic therapist or a genie to give us what we want. Being a follower is, is very difficult. It's hard. So Jesus says to each and every one of us, who do you say I am? And some of us struggle to really genuinely answer that, or maybe we struggle to discern how to get into that. I'm gonna give you three questions. These three questions will help you as you jump in the text. These three questions have helped me time and time again get a clear understanding of who the true Jesus is. And we all wanna do that. The first question, what did Jesus really say? When I'm reading scripture, when I see Jesus in the text, I wanna know what he really said. In other words, get in it. Understand the context of what's happening in the chapter. Understand the context of his words. Don't take his words out of context. See what he actually means. Second question I ask when I see those red letters is, what did Jesus really do? I mean, I wanna see the impact that he's making. What, what impact did he have? How did he act in a certain situation? Because what he did dictates what I do. At least it should. And a third question I ask is, how did people really experience Jesus? Like the crowd saw him and they weren't just fans, some were really genuinely affected. There's an emotional reaction. There's an emotional reaction to a blind man who gets his sight or a bleeding woman who stops bleeding, to a, a, a man with leprosy who is immediately healed, to a, a young a young married couple who ran out of wine and, and Jesus provides not just wine, but the best wine. Who do you say Jesus is? As we walk into Holy Week, my encouragement to you is to answer the question, who do I believe Jesus really is? When I get into the text, not who I want him to be, not who it would be convenient if he would be, not a misunderstanding of who he could be, but answer the question as if Jesus is looking right at you saying, who do you say I am? Because in our text today, we see that people who have a misunderstanding of Jesus are setting themselves up for unmet expectations. But people who are following the one true living Christ, their lives are transformed, they're changed, they're different. You know, one of the scariest thoughts is what if Jesus isn't who you think he is? What if he's so much more? Let's pray. God, thanks for today. Thanks for your gift of the word to be encouraged by uh, scripture. God, grow us up, sharpen us, challenge our view of you that is inaccurate. Help us catch a glimpse of you every single moment of the day that we can be 
uh, fully devoted, hardcore followers of the one true living God. We love you. We pray these in, in Christ's name. Amen and amen. Love you. Have a great Holy Week.